Welcome to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, a bi-weekly look at all things related to the growing elite clubs nationally, the ECNL. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. Now, here's your host for Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast, former U.S. soccer press officer and longtime soccer broadcaster, Dean Linke. I am Dean Linke. Happy holidays from the ECNL family. And yes, we have a special holiday edition up first on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL president and CEO Christian Labors talks with the founders of ATA Football. ATA, A-T-A Football, is a women's football company devoted to elevating the sport and its players. Founded by former Sky executive with expertise in sports media rights and new ventures, Hannah Brown, along with former professional soccer player, collegiate coach, and sports marketer, Esmeralda Negron. And guess what? Christian Labors, of course, booked both Esmeralda and Hannah, and you will love these two power players. And then we welcome back ECNL Boys Commissioner Jason Cutney for a very thought-provoking visit with accomplished English footballer Mark Wilson, who started his career in 1997 under Sir Alex Ferguson at Man United and played until 2013, including a stint with Dallas and MLS. Mark is now a founder of Beyond Pulse, which you can learn more about at beyondpulse.com. Like Christian's visit with Esmeralda and Hannah, it's a can't-miss interview with Jason and Mark. And we get it all started after this message from the ECNL. As the game continues to evolve in the United States, the ECNL remains the standard of excellence in youth soccer. The Elite Clubs National League has grown to include over 200 clubs and nearly 50,000 players across the country with a robust competition platform for teams, educational resources for coaches and clubs, and unparalleled identification and development opportunities for players. Alongside its member clubs, collaborating to create a better future, the ECNL continues to raise the game every day. The ECNL is more than a league. Top leagues, one community. Atta Football is the global destination for women's football. In fact, their motto is we put women's football center stage. Atta Football is a women's football company devoted to elevating the sport and its players. Founded by former Sky executive with expertise in sports media rights and new ventures, Hannah Brown, along with former professional soccer player, collegiate coach, and sports marketer, Esmeralda Negron. Atta Football is here to change the global trajectory of women's football through a fundamental shift in media rights distribution. We will bring the sport's greatest leagues, clubs, and players into the hearts, minds, and homes of millions. And Christian Lavers, the talented ECNL president and CEO, is pleased to be joined by Esmeralda and Hannah. But let me give a little more info on both of these talented women. We start with Esmeralda Negron, the co-founder and general manager, and she has made a name for herself on and off the pitch at every stage of her career. A first-team All-American at Princeton, she went on to play as a member of the U21 U.S. Women's National Team and professionally in France and Germany. Following her playing career, Esmeralda held D1 coaching positions for the women's soccer programs at Seton Hall and Princeton. She parlayed her soccer savvy and business acumen as part of a prominent role at Relevant Sports Group, where she helped launch and direct the Women's International ICC, a women's professional club tournament featuring the best clubs in the world. Having experienced life as a professional soccer player from all angles, Negron understands that the journey can only go so far without an increase in awareness, exposure, 
and further commercialization. At Atta Football, Negron will serve as general manager, working to secure new rights and distribution deals, developing key partnerships, and leading the launch of their consumer platform for players and fans around the world. Welcome, Esmeralda. Delighted to be with you. Thanks, Dean. Thanks for the great intro. And thanks, Christian. We're so happy to be here, and we so appreciate the support. Well said. And a little bit on Hannah Brown, co-founder and advisor at Atta Football. After beginning her career as an accountant with global leader KPMG, Hannah has since developed her expertise in the world of media, sports rights, acquisition, and new ventures. Brown spent nearly a decade at Sky, where she was immersed in sports venture investing, commercial finance, and media rights acquisition. During her time at Sky, she secured premium rights for Sky Sports, led Sky's investments in new sports ventures, and supported the management of Sky's joint venture portfolio. Brown is now the Chief Strategy and Business Development Officer for Formula E, the all-electric single-seater international motorsport championship launched in 2014. At Atta, Brown serves as an advisor to Esmeralda, and she leads the business securing new rights and distribution deals and developing the consumer platform for players and fans around the world. Two impressive women. Welcome, Hannah. Well, it's great to be here, Dean and Christian. Thank you very much for having Esmeralda and I. It's, um, it's, it's a real pleasure. It feels like a, a lot to follow after that introduction. So thank you. Well, it's my pleasure, and as a huge advocate for women's soccer and women's sports in general, I'm delighted to even play a small role, and I can't wait to sit back and listen to your discussion. But before I turn it over to the talented Mr. Lavers, I do have a question about the name because it is so unique, but there's some power in the name, Hannah. I'll let you tell that story. Esmeralda and I were housemates in New York the last year or so. I'm now back in the UK, but you know, it was great to live with Esmeralda for a couple of years. And when we were thinking about Atlanta before we'd given it its name, um, both of us have been really inspired by reading the Nike book and being inspired by the story of Phil Knight and his journey. And Nike was a Greek god and we loved the name. And we were doing a bit of reading and we stumbled across Atlanta and she was a huntress. She was a fierce competitor and she set great standards, not only for herself, but those around her we thought that she was a great name and a great beacon for us to kind of set our sights on and, and, and hence the name Atalanta the sake of the trade name we're, we're Atta football but that's where the Atta comes from an impressive introduction an awesome name for the business so congrats to you guys I mean it's new relatively especially for the long list of accomplishments that you've already have and I appreciate the James Earl Jones of soccer giving us the intro there, Dean. So thank you for that. So I guess I'll go back to, and, I, and I'll, I'll throw this first question to you as the transition from going from a player to a coach is probably more common, something that a lot of people have looked at or thought about, but making that transition from player or coach into the business world of sport is a big jump and something that there is a lot of question about and uncertainty. Can you maybe talk about how you decided to get into the sports business world, where your first stop was and how that transition went for you and thoughts you have on it for people that are, are looking at something similar. So I obviously started out as a player, like incredibly passionate. All I wanted to do is play the game, play at the highest level. I had aspirations in playing for the U.S. Women's National Team because I think that was the only path to playing women's football professionally, so to speak, at the time. And so I went on this journey of continuing to play. When I graduated college, the first iteration of the Women's Pro League, we said folded. I was with the U21 National Team at the time and kind of pursuing that goal of playing for the full team. I was actually one of the first U.S. players to go play professionally in Europe, in France 
immigrants in Germany. If you can imagine in 2005, and this was 15 years ago, sadly, the conditions weren't great. It wasn't fully professionalized. And so I actually got into college coaching, not really necessarily with this passion to get into coaching, but actually got into it as a stepping stone to going back to playing when the next iteration of the Women's Pro League launched, the WPS. So I was actually playing in Germany professionally and a former youth coach of mine had gotten the, the head coaching job at Seton Hall. And he gave me a call. He said, I know you want to play. Would you come support me? Be my assistant. You can continue to train with the team. It'll keep you connected and fit. And then you're ready to go back to play. You can do that. But I think I wasn't really ever able to do that because it was really hard at a certain age once you get to your mid-20s and you can no longer be on your parents' insurance plan to continue to be a player. It was a very, very difficult time for me because I think I suffered a lot of mental anguish as a result of not really being able to play despite it being very much what all I wanted to do. And so I ended up being in college coaching for eight years, crazy enough. I was at Seton Hall for four years and thinking about wanting to transition to the professional side of the sport was actually going to go to law school because I thought that might actually open up some, some doors for me. And then uh, Julie Shackford, my head coach at Princeton called me. She said, you know, the assistant job's open. I know college coaching hasn't necessarily like spoken to you, but I think if you come to be the assistant at your alma mater, maybe it'll kind of change your outlook on it. So I actually went uh, to Princeton, had a great experience, but knew ultimately that wasn't for me. I wanted to stay involved in the sport, started to make some great connections specifically with some Princeton alums that had kind of transitioned into this, the business side of soccer or football, so to speak. And so that's how I got connected to Matt Contos and Charlie Stilitano at Relevant Sports Group and the ICC. I put myself out there. I said, look, I really want to transition into kind of doing something in the business side of the sport, but I didn't even know what those opportunities were. So I started just interning with them one summer while I was still a collegiate coach uh, took some time, traveled with Real Madrid, kind of did some operations stuff. And then from then on, I, they kept asking me to come back every summer to help in a more kind of a bigger role, whether it was marketing and grassroots outreach or the operational piece of things on the men's side. And that's actually how I got introduced to Relevant Sports Group and kind of made that transition. And I think once I was in that environment, I saw all the different opportunities, the commercial side, logistics side, a little bit of the media rights side, although I, I have to credit Hannah for <laughs> for pushing me in that direction. And now it's a onto football and that's onto media for giving me that exposure and obviously that experience in that realm or space of the sports industry. But you have to put yourself out there, make connections with people in the space, learn about all the different avenues you can go down, whether it's a marketing role, a content role, commercial sponsorships, media rights, activations in the event space and live sporting event space. Hopefully that will come back on soon enough. That was kind of my journey getting there as it was making those connections and exploring and taking some risks and opportunities to really get introduced to the sport industry as a whole. Definitely a winding path, taking <laughs> different continents to coaching, to <sighs> logistics and at some point, obviously, you, you met up with, with Hannah Brown, and, and Hannah, I'll turn it over to you maybe on, on that story, but also on your path. Before we started, you were talking about the very glamorous auditing on a cold field in December 31st, where, where you started. And maybe give a, a little background on how you got into the sports business world as well. My career has been just one accident after another, I think, is safe to say. I mean, you know, my family, I mean, I, I don't know in terms of li the listeners of this podcast, but if they're like girls out there thinking about what the future might hold and how it pans out, then maybe I'm an example. If you've got no clue, it's not necessarily the end of the world. So I was not an athlete like Esmeralda, but a pretty like general kind of athlete, always loved school outside. I rode pretty seriously at 
international level with the horses for a long time up until actually really only a couple of years ago and so an idea of sitting in an office was a long way from my life but you know I had a pretty decent academic background I'd heard of this company called KPMG so filled an application form and my boyfriend at the time was like I mean Hannah I really don't think you want to be an accountant I'm like I don't think they're accountants I think they do all sorts of different things it's like no Hannah they're definitely accountants so I get offered this job at KPMG and all of my family are doctors and scientists and I'd studied science at university and they were like, feels like it's a sensible thing for you to go and do. So I find myself four years at KPMG and 11 exams later um, and a few, you know, um, looking into, coin, uh, into corn, corn stacks on, on the 31st of December or counting cars for Dame Chrysler or looking at, you know, great big tubes full of plastic silos to make car bumpers but actually I'm quite a nosy and practical person and maybe that's a thing that has um, permeated through my career so I had a great time at KPMG and and then by accident I ended up at Sky actually I knew very little about media in fact nothing at all I was always a sports fan and loved watching sports with my dad um, but I was riding seriously and I picked Sky because it's a great location for where I trained and I could carry on training seriously with my riding I have a lot to thank a very special horse I had during that time um, for ending up at Sky and and the only other advice I could then give is put yourself in the very best and most competitive environment with the very best people that you can. And I was so lucky to land at Sky in 2008, beginning of a world economic implosion that you know no one had really seen before. The dot-com crisis was something that was quite different to what we saw in 2008. Um, and so probably people listening now, you know, in a similar sort of situation and thinking about what the next step is. And I was fortunate to end up in a business that, you know, fundamentally grew for the 10 years I was there and that provided all sorts of opportunities and challenges. And so I started off in a pretty junior finance job, was moved around the business and learned various different trades, including with a joint venture portfolio business with the likes of Nickelodeon and Comedy Central and some of the football clubs. So I learned about how ventures were put together and the kind of deals that they did and found myself in Sky Sports after about four or five years at Sky. And after a year or so, they asked me if I would move out of finance and move into what they called the commercial team, but that was a rights buying team. And I bought sports media rights with Sky Sports and I ended up being head of sports media rights for Sky Sports after a couple of years. And then I kind of combined my knowledge of the sports business with my kind of bit of venture experience to kind of get involved in startup investing. And Sky was taking kind of startup space pretty seriously by that stage. I think we're probably now in about 2014, 2015. So I did a couple of years of that. And off the back of that, I met actually the, uh, a guy, Matt Higgins, who runs RSE Ventures, which Relevant Sports is part of. And he said, why don't you come out to America? You're 35. I wasn't married. Come and experience New York. And I, again, had no, I had no aspirations of coming and living in America. And so fortunate to have an amazing three years. Um, a year when I met Esmeralda, we ended up becoming housemates. And another year and a half um, working for a, uh, over the internet delivered pay TV business called Fubo that we had actually invested in while I was at Sky. So phenomenal time now back in the UK, but, um, you know, I would do it all over again and, and so lucky to have met Esmeralda and, and in our flat in, uh, in, in the Upper West Side, New York, um, we dreamt up after football 12 months on, we're now, I don't know, as we 13 or 14 weeks into business, we launched first week in September. So it's been a bit of a roller coaster, and I, you know, full-time at Formula E as well. So it's been a long and pretty tough year, but a career of, of, of accidents for certain. I'm going to summarize this. You go from horseback riding to accounting to media distribution for Sky and now into out of football. 
And as takes the journey through coaching and playing and, and multiple, both of you crossing the, the pond a couple of times to connect. It's easy to take a brand like KPMG or relevant sports or a position like media rights and sky and sports marketing and all the sort of glitz and glamor that tends to go with that. I think the real short story that you guys have is it, it, there's a lot more work to it than it might sound. But that's still another step then to actually going out and starting your own venture. We want to turn to focus a lot of this on out of football and what it is that out of football does and the vision that you guys have for that, because just giving a tease, I mean, you guys have deals now with ESPN, you have deals with NBC sports, obviously with sky, those are some pretty big hitters, but to have the guts to go out and start something new, to start it in the middle of the pandemic. And then to build it to where it is, is pretty awesome. So why don't you guys talk to us about the vision of out of football, what it is and what you're hoping to do with it. So out of football actually has, I think, two pieces of the business. And one is really around providing accessibility and visibility to women's football. I think in the past, women's sport in general and football has just really lacked accessibility, media coverage, promotion, and this sense of kind of normalizing it and ensuring that it's alongside men's sport and kind of on those same types of platforms and broadcasters. That's basically the core of our, our business and the inspiration for launching this. Before, you weren't able to access the Champions League. You weren't able to access the top or premier women's football from Europe. You know, you had so many record crowds in 2019, including Atletico versus Barca in front of, at the Wanda in front of 60,000 people. And me being... A, a football women's football fan and having worked with all the big clubs in my days at relevant sports group, I couldn't follow these teams and I couldn't access this. And I think it started to get really frustrating and irritating for me. And I was always venting to Hannah. So that was kind of the inspiration around it and why we launched Atlanta to really ensure that these women's football players and clubs and some of the best brands in the world can now be accessed by fans in the U S and additional territories that we have the rights to as well. On the back of that, we're, you know, we're building our own digital community called Atta Football, AttaFootball.com. It's free access to live on-demand matches from our licensed leagues, which includes FAWSL, D1F, and the Bundesliga. We're also kind of developing these great partnerships with other people in the space that are investing on the women's side and, and have kind of similar missions in terms of bringing more visibility to women's athletes and sport in general. So we've, we've partnered with Vision of a Champion, starting to aggregate some great podcasts around women's footballers. So Vision of a Champion, Just Women's Sports, The Equalizer, kicking back with Jeff. And so we're, we're really trying to elevate this visibility and accessibility for fans around the world and specifically in the U.S. and our additional territories in Europe. But our long-term goal is really to build this really unique digital community for young girls. I think myself, I don't think I realized it until now, but I never had female role models really in the sports realm. I think my role models when I was younger, well, really my one was Michael Jordan, obsessed with him as an athlete, you know, what he brought to the sport, how he changed it. But when I think back, the only time I ever really saw female footballers or female athletes was I think the 99 World Cup was the first time and then I started to quickly become a fan of Mia Hamm but I don't think young girls for the amount of girls that play the game in the U.S. and globally they've never really had access to the women's game they're not able to become fans aside from the you know the big events like the World Cup and Olympics never have access to really regularly see these players play. And that's something we really want to solve. We want to bring them closer to the game. We want to provide them with amazing opportunities, whether it's through mentorship programs in our community. 
digital skills, really great player development content, access to all these matches. And we're, we're really excited to build that out. And that'll kind of be the focus in the new year. To back up real quick, because I had the pleasure of having you guys explain to me the business model, which you talked through so quickly. It's really not a simple business model. It's really cool what you guys did. I mean, to make sure it's not missed, you guys have the rights to all of the women's professional games in England and Germany and France. Is that correct? That's exactly right. What, what we saw was, I mean, just kind of to, to back up, like, you know, we're focused on the US first because there's such a big and important player base in the US and it felt like a great space to start. And you've got these, you know, brilliant commercial broadcasters as well. So we thought there was a way at the first part of the business with Esmeralda explained around the broadcast opportunity and allowing these games to be seen, but also you've got this really rich and vibrant player base. But let's be very clear, I think there's a great opportunity to go after another international markets. But as a startup, we had to focus our attention somewhere. And between Ez and I, we felt our skills were best focused on the US, but also licensing this European content to bring over to America. Because unlike the domestic deals, you can so for those of you that aren't kind of that okay with how it works with media rights what happens is the domestic broadcaster is on the hook for producing the games that's a pretty expensive job they've got to go around put the cameraman in there they've got to direct and produce a game and provide what's called a world feed of the game which they will put their own commentary on for local purposes Um, but what we have in the women's game because it's not really been commercially exploited so in america you will watch the premier league courtesy of NBC, those games are produced domestically in the UK by Sky and BT, who are the domestic rights holders, and actually also Amazon Prime, also from last season. And then NBC will take those games and put their own commentary on them and make them relevant for you as a US audience. So what Esmeralda and I noticed was, well, actually, we could go and pretty cost-effectively go and pick up the international rights for these European leagues and take them over to America and really allow access for we have what's phenomenal talent in Europe now playing at the league level. The ability for these, you know, huge number of US fans that we thought would have an interest in the game if only they could see it to have access. So that was the kind of idea. And then we had to go around and persuade the FA in the UK to sell us their rights and the Canal Plus, who are the French broadcaster who owned the French rights, um, similarly um, with Deutsche Telekom, who owned the German rights. So um, that's where we started. It's, as I say, this is the, the kind of first spin of the dice for us, but we started with these three leagues. And then we found some great broadcast partners in NBC and in ESPN who would help distribute those games because when you're a startup going to a league normally when you're a broadcaster going to a league you're offering two things to a rights holder you're offering money because they need money to produce games and pay players etc and you need to also offer great distribution so that you can drive eyeballs to those games and if you don't have great eyeballs you need to have a lot of money and if you don't have a lot of money you need to have a lot of eyeballs that's how you get these deals done and the ideal thing for rights holders where those two things are kind of perfectly intersect someone's got quite a lot of audience they're also prepared to pay for it and so what was important we couldn't just go to the fa and say could we buy your rights but by the way we don't have any distribution because we're brand new so that nbc deal was such a vital part to us securing the fa deal but is also allowing us to aggregate that content onto our own platform whereas if nbc had bought the the rights and espn had done the french league rights it wouldn't be possible to do this aggregation piece in the middle so that was a leap of faith that Esmeralda and I took. And let's also be very clear, our investors, seven partners who have supported us on this journey, have allowed us to go and take that upfront risk of buying the rights, doing these distribution deals with a long-term business plan of putting all those aggregated rights together 
and editing them in a way which is really useful for the grassroots to use for training and development purposes. But like your timing is impeccable right now as women's soccer is at the forefront. We're with the co-founders of Ada Football, Esmeralda Negron and Hannah Brown. We'll take a break and be back with more Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. ECNL is partnering with Puma for the second year, driving sport forward with the leading products and the next generation of pros who wear them. Puma has proven themselves as the fastest sports brand in the world, the fastest innovation, the fastest players, and the fastest products in the game. They're the perfect partner to complement the speed and talent of our teams. In keeping with their mantra of forever faster, Puma introduces the world's fastest boot, the Ultra. The only boot engineered for speed, the Ultra combines a woven upper with a lightweight outsole for direct forward motion, speed, and acceleration. It's the best in the game, designed for the best players in the game. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Linky with Christian Labors, the talented ECL president and CEO. And I am loving this opening segment, holiday style, as we are with the co-founders of Atta Football, the global destination for women's football. And what a difference a day or 30 years make. I think about 1989, I was plopped into Santa Barbara with the U.S. Women's National Team, Anson Dorrance with Michelle Akers and April Heinrichs and Kara Jennings and Mia Hamm before she was Mia Hamm, Julie Foudy. And then I would go to Chapel Hill and hang out with Christine Lilly and Mia Hamm and see them winning all these national championships. And then the courage come and they bring in Birgit Prinz and Hegarisa. And that was amazing. And still nobody wanted to hear it. Fast forward to today, everybody wants to hear it. I mean, the numbers watching the U.S. women's team incredible, the numbers watching the NWSL incredible, and what's going on overseas with the women's leagues out of this world. So pandemic or no pandemic, Esmeralda and Hannah, I think your timing is impeccable. The time is now for what you're doing. Well, we definitely agree with that. And actually, it's interesting you allude to what was going on in Europe because, you know, I'm much newer to the U.S., football soccer space clearly um, my accent gives that away probably in a moment but what was really interesting for me was that for the first time the big brands in European football were coming to play at the party and not only were they getting involved you know, we've seen Arsenal and Man City and Chelsea Lyon have been investing in their program for a long time but now you're seeing Real Madrid have got involved in a serious way Barcelona team are phenomenal Esmeralda was telling me last year she watched their U. 14 or the U16 girls play and said they were unbelievable out of the world in terms of the skill levels that they were showing. And now suddenly you've got Man United have launched a team after two seasons and now top of the table in the WSL. And not only are these brands coming to play, but you're starting to see their fans turn up and watch. And we saw some great stats with North London derbies, with Madrid derbies, Manchester derbies, where you were getting north of 20, 30, 40,000 fans coming to the game. I think there was a Wanda Stadium game, Esmeralda, with I think that was 60,000 people in the ground. PSG came across to play Chelsea in a Champions League game and big crowds. Chelsea went back to PSG and, you know, the atmosphere in the game was like it was a men's Champions League quarterfinal. It was phenomenal flares going off in the stadium. I think it was actually a pretty rowdy affair by all accounts. But that really gave us a feeling that this is on the turn here. These domestic fans are turning up in their droves, you know, Fathers are bringing their daughters, you know, 50,000 at Wembley for an FA Cup final, for a women's FA Cup final. And we felt these are the kind of scenes that 
you want to see as a, as a sports fan, whether you're a male or a female sports fan. And Esmeralda and I felt that this was an environment that the best athletes in the world were going to want to be in. And we did not know this when we launched out of football, but the fact that we've now seen a number of the US women's national team stars come over to play for the likes of Manchester United and Manchester City this season is, I think, a testament to that. And sure, it's a real shame there aren't fans in the ground, but I think you can't underestimate what it means to pull on a Manchester United shirt and say you played for Manchester United. And that was another big factor for why we thought the time was right now. You just threw out a whole bunch of big numbers in terms of attendance, which is pretty amazing. But I think to take a step back at what you guys have done, because it's one thing to see those numbers at those games, but it's another thing to do what, you, what you've done, which is you basically created a new way of packaging rights and media. You guys are the reason why American kids now could watch all of these games, whether it's England, France, or Germany, whether it's on NBC Sports, which I think the Manchester Derby was on a couple of weeks ago, courtesy of Out of Football. But you basically had to go find funding and investors. Then you had to go to rights holders and say, hey, give us your rights. Then you had to go to major networks and say, give us the ability to broadcast this. And you had to go to each one without knowing what you had with the other one. So you're trying to tie together like five knots at once, which I would think most people would say, Hannah and Ed, you guys are crazy. Uh, and crazy. this is just a fool's errand. And yet somehow you guys walked away from that with the money to do it, the rights to do it, and the broadcasting to do it. So how the heck do you do that? It's crazy how this came. I feel like it's so crazy how this came to fruition. Hannah and I talk about it all the time. I'm like, I don't even know how this happens, right? It was like- We say it, most days we think we've lost our marbles and we're really <laughs> tired. That's what we say <laughs> But I will say like, Hannah and I always reference this one moment. I remember like, I was always going on about women's football and soccer and like how there was so much opportunity. It's in this like growth stage it's exciting, these record crowds, the 2019 Women's World Cup. But we realized, you know, there's still so much that needs to happen in terms of supporting it and accelerating its growth. And I remember we were like brainstorming in like October, like, what can we do? I threw out something about like athlete representation. And we were kind of like in this like state, we read Phil Knight's Shoe Dog, which definitely inspired us. I remember like so vividly, so many key moments along the way in this journey to creating Atalanta. But I remember Hannah coming out one morning, it was like a Saturday or Sunday morning and she comes out and her hands come up really high. And she's like, I've got it, I know what we're doing. And it was this idea about aggregation and coming in the middle and investing in the rights in order to ensure that this gets on premium broadcast and it's actually accessible to fans in our licensed territories and hopefully around the world. And then we just started to iterate from there. This The idea started to develop. And I remember we had, I don't think we had spoken to any leagues yet, but we have this, we reached out to NBC and we're like, we have this like crazy idea. We want to chat with you about it. We had no idea how they'd respond. And they actually met us for a really nice breakfast meeting. I remember in January. And I think we always think about that moment as that kind of like, it was such a pivotal moment for us with Atsanta because when we met with them, we had no idea how they were going to respond to us if they'd want to support our idea or a business that hadn't even been like, launched yet nor did we have any sort of investors or anything yet and they were so amazing it was john miller and wendy bass at nbc and they were phenomenal they were like we love this we'll support i think the next day they sent us a list of kind of slots Lots. in terms of programming for like this coming this season that we're in right now this is in january they sent us we can commit to this we're on board and i think it was in that moment right Hannah? i feel like we like 
we felt energized and inspired and we're like, I think we can do this. And then that it kind of took off from there because we were able to present this idea to the FA and say, hey, look, this is our idea. We want to support you guys. We want to you know, ensure that you get this visibility. We want the league to sit alongside the Premier League. We have this great distribution partner. Again, we had no money yet or no real like <laughs> company, but okay. I, they love they love the idea, right? I felt like they were like, you yes. guys must be the most persuasive salesman ever. I don't know. Uh, I don't even think we are. <laughs> you can see me at the moment. I'm trying to get what should be a very simple deal done. And I, I've been trying for six months um, to get a, a, a little clip, European women's clip show done, which requires all sorts of people to agree with each other and, and finding, <laughs> like, linking all these circles up to find the little spot where I can get them to agree is proving almost impossible. But if we get it done, it will be a big moment. So Yeah, and then, then what happened then? So we, was, we got a support from FA, the FA, and then you met with 777. You had to go down to Miami for a conference. You met with them, presented the idea. I mean, most people, I think, have to go through a pretty rigorous process in terms of looking for potential investors and pitching their business idea. We did speak to a good chunk of people about the idea, but 777 in particular were so interested. They have a portfolio of companies that are trying to build out their sport and entertainment vertical, are invested in Fanatis, a streaming platform for soccer specifically. And I think their audience has expressed some interest in having access to women's football and that's what kind of linked us to them and, and I think sparked their interest in the company but you tell the story Hannah I, I actually don't know how it went with 777 you just met with them came back and you're like I think we have investors yeah well, I went <laughs> crazy. to meet them because they were in you know I had been working in the pay tv via the internet business and I just very literally the week before had left Fubo and they were interested to meet me and find out a bit more and I literally went for a courtesy I've been introduced by someone that Esmeralda and I both know Boris Gartner at La Liga and he said oh just pop in and see these guys if you're in Miami so I was like yeah sure no problem so I went in there and chatted to uh, Juan Arcanegas who was is, is one of the partners there and I said well also when working on this little idea with a friend of mine and talked to him about after football and he said well that's kind of interesting would you be interested in a slightly atypical investment structure versus a normal kind of uh, startup investment structure and we said well we're open to all ideas to be honest with you and that's where it started. I think from that March, it took from March until we signed all of our agreements late August, and then we launched the business in September. Um, so we had six months of just trying to close all the deals. We'd lined up, the FA were interested and the French League were interested and NBC and ESPN were interested. And we had an investor interested and then we had to just like take all of those contracts along the way. And then that allowed us to launch. And then we can't have this podcast without talking about two phenomenal people well two sets of phenomenal people one is gravity media our production business company who without which we'd be absolutely lost and <laughs> this production company in west london who pick up the games put phenomenal commentary on if anyone's listening even if you don't have time to watch a lot watch 10 minutes of a game the commentary is really phenomenal they've done a great job for us and then we also had a great lawyer called Morris Ventato who also put up with us for those six months. A pretty, pretty painful process, I'm sure, for him. But none of this would be possible without either of those two groups. Well, that's uh, collaboration and teamwork is one thing that I just hear in spades through that as you put all this stuff together. So I don't know that you could overstate how complicated this probably was to do and make all these pieces work. So congratulations to you think going even a step further. And as you hinted at it earlier, I mean, it's a pretty powerful statement when you said, looking back, you weren't sure when you had a female role model as a player, but that ties to maybe the bigger vision here in terms of impact and the ability 
everybody talks about the need for players to watch more games at a high level. And typically that has been female players watching male players because there's just not been video and there's not been games. What you guys are doing, it's not just the NWSL, which is here in certain markets, but you guys are now bringing the best across the world and being able to put them on those players' phones, on their computers, so that at any point they could watch highlights, clips, interviews, whatever it may be, with somebody that they aspire to be. So talk about that vision, because that's big. It's been talked about forever, and yet nobody's been able to crack that. And here you guys are putting something out there that provides this content in a way that's never been available before. I think I put on my player hat or my coaching hat, and watching the game at the highest level is so, so incredibly important for player development. I think it's something traditionally, just from my experience, having coached at the youth level, been a youth player, been a collegiate coach, I think traditionally young girls actually don't watch much of the game, even on the men's side either. And I know from my experience as a player, like I never had access to this kind of type of caliber of women's football, right? The first time I saw anything was that when I was 16 and I had already been playing the game for 10 years already, right? With the Women's World Cup in 1999. And I remember the impact that that actually made for me. Thereafter, all I had this vision of being was like the next Mia Hamm on the women's national team. And I think you can't underestimate how powerful that is for young players. I think Hannah and I were talking to a friend of ours, and I think she spoke to one of the collegiate coaches at one of the Ivy League schools, and they had taken their players over to the 2019 Women's World Cup. I think the comments and basically over, over kind of overwhelming feeling was that that putting her players in that environment to see the best in the world and the best females and to play at this elite stage in front of, you know, packed stadiums at that type of level just really inspired them. And Brown, I play in the Ivy League, is not traditionally the top team in the league, but they came back and they won the league, had the most amazing season. But I think you really just can't underestimate that impact, whether it's on a subconscious level or a conscious level for young players. And we would love to shift a culture and really kind of push girls to start to be fans and in a very authentic way, just by providing them regular access so they can start to cultivate these role models. They can start to dream big and think big if they want to play at that level. Or if they don't, that's okay. Maybe they can just be fans of the game and fans of the best players in the world. And women's players need fans. They need to grow their audience. They need that so much. This support is so crucial to basically driving this like cycle of reinvestment in the game. Just the basic level, everyone knows without fans, you can't sell tickets, merchandise, the media rights value can't increase, commercial sponsorship investment can't increase. So young girls can actually change the trajectory of what women's football kind of that ecosystem looks like just by tuning in, supporting, becoming fans of the game. And we're so excited that if you're, you know, a female player out there or male player, it doesn't really matter if you're a youth player and you want to watch the top of the top and you want to have access to all these matches and, and highlights and clips and great content, you know, you can easily access that. And coaches, if you're, you know, especially during this COVID time, if you can't get on the field with your players, like Atta Football provides free access to all these phenomenal matches on demand. So you know, go on and, and assign your players a match to watch and, and do some kind of player development and, and use it as an educational opportunity as well. Looking forward now, a couple of years, I mean, now that you've conquered this world and tied all this together and moving to the next We're challenge, so far <laughs> from that. Where, where is out of football in a couple of years? What's next for you guys without a football? 
we think there is a huge opportunity on the platform side. So we're talking about in the near term, creating some best of video, allowing using the archive and the library that we have to put the coaches and players together, this kind of great content. So that's going to be step one. But we believe with the relationships we've got with the clubs in Europe, with the relationships with you know, some of these big player groups in the, in the US and, you know, Christian, you know, our conversations with you and the ECNL have been, you know, hugely inspiring for us because it's exactly the audience that we hope will be really interested in a product like Atta Football. But we think that we can create some great experiences and opportunities and we can do that for players in Europe and for players in the US. And you know, Esmeralda and I, through sport, but also professionally, have really benefited from what going and seeing how other regions and cultures operate and that kind of experience and so how we can develop opportunities for players to to travel to receive mentorship for elite athletes to come and grow their profiles and potentially their commercial opportunities in other markets is also interesting we think there's some great playing opportunities that we can put together for young girls um, you know the european clubs really want to inspire another generation through their female program so we're pretty confident that we can bring some really exciting brands that also can provide great opportunities so we would love Atta Football to be a platform where if you're a young girl playing the game you want to be part of that community because we can deliver something that is really beneficial to you and your club and the league that you play in and that we just help facilitate great experiences that give you lifelong memories and we all understand that only a very small proportion people will end up being professional athletes but sport has got so much more to offer than just the athletic part of success it's the teamwork it's a grit it's determination it's the friends you make it's the challenges you face and some of them you meet and others of them you don't and you have to find another way around and Esmeralda and I hugely believe in the power of sport and um, to be a force for good and to make the world you know a, a better and a stronger place and um, and we'd love after football to be a part of delivering that for for young girls maybe I'll wrap this up with a question that looks back to where we started because we started quickly and talking about where you guys came from in your journey and looking forward and now where you are looking backwards at the younger version of, of you and, and the path that's in front of you. What do you reflect on? I mean, I, I love what you talk about, about the holistic value of sport. We believe in that completely at the, at the ECNL. But when you look back at where, where this journey has gone, how it's changed you, what do you look back on with most fondness or what do you look back on with most surprise in terms of the development piece? Because obviously this journey changes you every step and looking back and looking forward always gives you a different perspective. Yeah, I, I think from an Atta football perspective, you know, if I'm looking back a few few years down the road from then and, and looking back now, you know, I hope that we create this amazing community that young girls feel so incredibly proud to be a part of, like Hannah alluded to, that, you know, it provides some incredible, inspiring experiences, valuable opportunities, an opportunity to really drive change and to be a part of something bigger than even themselves and their own aspirations. I think for me, that's the biggest thing. Like I, I think of myself as a young player and I never had this this accessibility. I never had these opportunities. I think of myself as a collegiate coach and wanting to develop my players at that level and struggling to really show them, like I could teach, I could tell them timing of runs off the ball or all these different pieces, but actually being able to show them with the best players in the world and to inspire them in that way. Like I, I think about how valuable that content and that ability to do that would be. So we hope that we really inspire. We bring together a phenomenal and passionate community of young girls and 
you know, I'm so, so excited to see kind of what that looks like. In terms of for Esmeralda and I personally, like, I mean, I, I actually, I feel, and as I hope Esmeralda doesn't mind me saying this, but I mean, Esmeralda has in seven or eight months had this kind of whirlwind introduction to sports media. And I think if I can say one thing is just because somebody doesn't know something at one moment in time doesn't mean that in six months time they can't know an awful lot or definitely enough to be dangerous that's for certain and yeah, Esmeralda is now off negotiating media rights which seven months ago she didn't know anything about and nothing in life is that complicated you just got to put a bit of effort into figuring it out and as and I are figuring out as is probably a bit more of a peaceful character than me I'm um, I probably get a bit more frustrated <laughs> and I probably make some contributions to Esmeralda too so I think we're probably quite a complementary set of personalities but you know understanding other people in your team's differences and and the contribution that that can make and Esmeralda talks me down when I'm getting too frustrated and hopefully I you know cheer up when she might be thinking she might be at the end of her tether although I have to say <laughs> I've been at the end of my tether quite a lot of um but you know nothing in life is actually that complicated it's just kind of getting your head down and as was uh as was a very talented athlete and was a winner. I think I, um, my sister and I always say that we're very good at effort sports. We bring a bit less talent, but probably quite a lot of diligence. So probably the combination of the two has been an important part of, of why we've got this far with Atalanta. And both of us don't like giving up. So we're going to keep battling on. And let's be clear, like we've got a lot done, but we're still under a lot a lot of press, a lot to do over the next few months um, for us to get through this next piece. So as much as it sounds like a meteoric and smooth ride, it's, it's far from it. Um, <laughs> but if all else fails, we've learned an awful lot and, um, and we're really proud of what we've achieved so far. We appreciate having you. And I can tell you that our league will be doing everything we can to support your vision and to support your organization because not only are you two great people, but it's a, it's a wonderful vision to impact the sport. And so thank you. And thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a great holiday break, both of you. And thanks Dean. Thank you, Esmeralda. Thank you, Hannah. And thank you, Christian. This special holiday edition of breaking the line, the ECNL podcast is not over. When we return ECNL boys commissioner, Jason Cutney spends time with Mark Wilson. Who's one of the founders of beyond pulse. And he has played at the highest level, talks about his journey across the pond, and now what he's doing here in the States with Beyond Pulse. Mark Wilson, Jason Cutney, after these messages. Soccer.com is proud to partner with the ECNL to support the continued development of soccer in the U.S. at the highest levels. We've been delivering quality soccer equipment and apparel to players, fans, and coaches since 1984 living and breathing the beautiful game ourselves. Our goal at soccer.com is to inspire you to play better, cheer louder, and have more fun. Visit soccer.com today to check out our unmatched selection of gear, expert advice, and stories of greatness at every level of the game. This is Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Dean Link, your host, joined now by Jason Cutney, the ECNL Boys Commissioner. Welcome, Mr. Cutney, and happy holidays. Same to you, Dean, and as always, it's great to be with you. Delighted to be with you, and I am thrilled about your special guest, our special guest, I should say, Mark Wilson, a storied professional career that began way back in 1997 and ran all the way through 2013, included stops at Man United, Middlesbrough, Stoke City, Sheffield Wednesday, FC Dallas of Major League Soccer before returning back across the pond again. Mark Wilson is now the co-founder of Beyond Pulse, 
where he states, never underestimate the empowering effect of human connection. Building meaningful relationships with people is something Mark believes is the foundation for sustainable success. Whether out on the field or in the office, Mark works every day to help others explore and achieve their potential. At the core of his value system, Mark Wilson's passion for empowering athletes and coaches to become leaders in their sporting communities is what brought him to Beyond Pulse. At Beyond Pulse, he focuses on helping coaches develop a growth mindset to realize the best version of themselves. And to be clear, Mark is a co-founder and likes to call himself a relationship developer. And Jason, as I turn it over to you, it's worth mentioning that you're very proud of the partnership between the ECNL and Beyond Pulse. Yeah, for sure. And Mark is right in that relationship developer. He was a big reason that we initially started talking about Beyond Pulse and really understanding the product and the services. And we couldn't be happier with having that partnership. It's something that we really look forward to growing forward with. And Mark and his team is certainly a big part of that. So appreciate the handoff there, Dean. We've tricked Mark. We built this up as a, a topic to talk about kind of morphing from a player into a future career. We really just want to talk about Manchester United and the table and, and why. No, just kidding. So, so Mark, we'll, uh, I'll start with a, an easier one just to kind of lighten the, uh, the conversation here. Yeah. I have to understand a little bit more about this. You started as a pro player checking in in a game for a goalkeeper and then scoring a goal to win a game against Burnley. So I need somehow to connect these dots. Help me out here. Pleasure to be on with, with both you and Dean today, Jason. Always humbled to be asked to come on and, uh, and share my story to date. That moment was my first introduction to professional league football. The gaffer, Sir Alex Ferguson, had decided that you now need to start playing against men. You might be doing well in the reserves and, and scoring goals and you've made your way through the youth ranks in, in a short space of time. But now I want to see you play against men on a Saturday in a lower league. My introduction was interesting. There's a little story that precedes me actually getting on the field. I travelled to the game with two guys. They called me up the day before and said, we'll pick you up before the game, which I thought was odd because normally you travel on a team bus, but they were allowed to drive to Burnley for this particular game and they picked me up in good time but we hit traffic on the way and this, this is my first introduction to the pro professional game and we actually got to the stadium 30 minutes before kickoff so I'm scrambling through the door and Brian Flynn who's a wonderful manager and a great guy he's like welcome to league football Mark there's your kit go out and join the rest of the boys for a warm-up so I'm warming up, I'm starting on the bench and we get into the game and yeah, obviously our goalkeeper ends up getting sent off and I end up subbing in, but our five foot eight midfielder decides he wants to be a goalkeeper <laughs> and gets the gloves on, goes in goal and the rest of the game went well. I scored my first football league goal, it was the winner, enjoyed the first celebration with the fans and never really looked back from there. Great experience. It was something that I, I learned through the powers of Wikipedia when I did a little bit more research into you. And it's an uncommon story there, but certainly one of, of great interest. And I'm sure it's set your sails in the right direction. And fortunately, you never had to go between the pipes there in your career. Um, I'm, I'm terrible. terrible. Yeah, yeah, we save everything with our feet, as, I've, as I know. So we'll dive into it here from the business side of things, right? And, you know, I think about the fact that I've, I've only really known the world of small business. I've been involved in startups, young companies since a young age. But I'm trying to understand from your side of things, you played at a, a much higher level of the game than I ever was able to accomplish. You went through managing injuries, loan stints, et cetera, et cetera. So when you think about how you prepared for a business career, how do you bridge that gap? How do you think some of that impact from your injuries, from your loan spells, from your just trials and tribulations as a young footballer, how do you think that played into you getting started in business and helping you through those initial 
stumbles that we all have. I think you know the world of, of startup businesses and small businesses, Jason. So you know that a big part of the growth is in the failure and mistakes you make and how you learn from them. So when I, I think about my inconsistent early career, because of my own mentality at that point, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I left Manchester United, was bought by Middlesbrough for 1.5 million, arrived at Middlesbrough as a 21-year-old and thought, hey, I made it. You know, I should be in the first team every week. I should be starting every week. And whether that's right or not, I didn't handle the bounce and the transition between 23s or reserve team as it was back then and back into the first team. My responsibility, even as a 21-year-old, should have been to be a better leader for the 16, 17-year-olds coming into that team at the time, rather than worrying about why the manager hasn't picked me, complaining about having to drop down to then go back up. It was something I didn't deal with well. And I had a, what, maybe 25, 30 appearances at Middlesbrough. Signed a five-year deal, I only played 25, 30 games. And it was an interesting period of growth for me, psychologically. And those moments where you find yourself out of the team, those moments where people are criticizing you or fans are critiquing you or saying, well, we bought this kid from United. Where is he? Why isn't he starting every game? You're aware of those things. And you can do one of two things. You can hide behind the fact you're making good money and go and satisfy yourself with material things, which is hollow and will never sustain you. Or you can get to work. You can take control. You can start to become a leader. You can start to become accountable. Unfortunately, by the time I realized I should have been doing the latter, I was coming towards the end of my Middlesbrough career, which then led me to Dallas. And that alongside two injuries that were probably six and eight months long, a snapped Achilles and a, and a torn piece of bone off my hip. Those moments of adversity bring an emotion to, to what you're doing at that time and what you do with those emotions, the anger, the pain, the negativity, the dark thoughts, you've got to try and channel them into something positive and you've got to find what you want to do next. And then you've got to go fight for it. You've got to find the courage somewhere to go and fight for it. And I think going through all of these peaks and troughs within my early career brought a balance and a consistency to my later career at Doncaster Rovers and a little bit at Dallas. You can see my, my stats start to improve. And then without really knowing it, coming over to the US as a director of coaching, which we can get into a little bit, and then moving into a business, not purposefully, but just by opportunity. I think all of those moments of adversity and failure and mistakes, and then adapting, which is where I think adaptability is a key piece of business. It's a key piece of soccer. It's certainly helped me transition into trying to think like a businessman, trying to think like a, a better leader, becoming more accountable for everything I do day to day. Put that in perspective, you were purchased for 1.5 million. I was purchased for 1.5 thousand by the Charleston Battery <laughs> coming out of college. So I appreciate you, you rubbing that in there slyly <laughs> as you always do. Hey, you were um, bought. Somebody paid money for you. Yeah, I, I think. I, I don't know. I think so. Um, either way, we got started, right? So uh, as a player, right, as a young player, we, we grow up, we idolize older players, right? We watch. It's much easier for kids nowadays to watch television, streaming, YouTube, you name it. They can watch plenty of games. We had to you know, struggle a bit more for that, especially in the US. It wasn't always the easiest. I had REI to watch Italian Serie A games and Telemundo to learn my Spanish. When you look from the business perspective, it's different. It's not always being able to watch someone on TV and what they're doing to start their companies. Who do you feel helped shape your mindset and then provided you that motivation, whether it's direct business or indirect, to become 
prepared for the business world to really help you with that wisdom that's required in the early going when you're going to fail and you're going to have to, to kind of overcome those failures? Who do you think really stood out in your history books as being that main impetus for your success? It's a great question. I mean, there's been some on-field and off-field influences for sure. One of the key influences early on was Sir Alex Ferguson. He taught me a great lesson that I've shared many times now about the value of discipline and doing the, the small things while nobody's watching, doing them well. The gaffer used to, Cliff Training Ground, used to come down every Friday down the stairs from his office and pick one of the youth team players to go and check the jobs to see if they've done them right. And mine was showers and toilets for the first year. And That's a long year, Mark. It's a long year. It's a, it's a long year, especially when it's the first team. They're a nasty bunch, those guys. <laughs> that was my job. That was my chore. And the gaffer comes down the stairs, and he used to carry this mini cricket bat. And he used to tap it on the railings just for effect as he was walking down the stairs. So imagine a small version of a, of a baseball bat, but flatter. And he'd point the bat into the group of players. And this particular day, it was me. So it'd be like, Wilson, curly finger. He would pull me out. And we walked down another set of steps and turn left into the first team locker room, dressing room. And he then proceeds to run his fingers through the tiles and run his hand around the back of the toilet. And guess what? I hadn't done my job right. There was dust there. The tiles were spotless. And he playfully tries to give me a clip with a cricket bat, not recommended for coaches to do today, that's for sure. And then he stands me still and looks me dead in the eye and he says, Wilson, if I can't trust you to do this very simple, disciplined job when nobody's looking, how can I trust you out in front of 65,000 people when you've got to play in my system with other players that understand their role and responsibilities when I'm putting pressure on you to perform at, at the biggest club in the world? How can I trust you if I can't trust you to do this here? And on one hand, it was nothing to do with football. And on the other hand, it was everything to do with football. And from that moment, I had a choice, as you always do. You either pass it off as, ah, oh, the gaffer's just trying to get me to do my job better. Or I take that as an inspirational moment, a moment of one, to really get my backside in gear and take pride in the things I'm doing when nobody's looking. No matter how cleaning is a noble job, something that needs doing plays into your core values for sure, and, and it transfers onto the field. So he would be one. I've had a number of other people like Eric Harrison and Mike Feeling who have impacted me on the field in terms of learning to develop that pure confidence and self-belief in who you are and what you do. And I think being at Manchester United always helped that. I remember being stood in the tunnel at Old Trafford, certainly there when we played at Old Trafford and looking across at opposition teams and just staring them down and they look and look away. In that era, United had that awe, that aura, about them um, and we felt it all the way down into the youth and reserve team so you went out there chest puffed out believing you're going to win and dominate every single time so they helped me with the self-confidence and, and pure self-belief and then Sean O'Driscoll is the probably the latest one in football to really impact detail analyze it he was the first manager out of all of the amazing coaches I've, I've had the privilege of working with to stop me in the middle of a I think I was two weeks into joining and just to paint a picture, you've got a fullback on the right-hand side at a halfway line looking to play a pass. And I'm a number six at this point. And I'm stood in front of my, my two centre-backs and there's a centre-forward in between. And the gaffer stops it. Sean stops it. And he says, Willow, what are you doing? Well, I'm you know, trying to block the pass into the forward. So, all right, what else are you doing? And I hadn't thought beyond that. I genuinely hadn't thought beyond it. And I said, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm hopefully going to intercept it. Or if the ball manages to get to him, I'll turn and try and 
challenged the, the fall. He said, well, what about if the seven pulls him off the line like he's about to, because I, I can see from his body movement, he's about to check in to a space in front of you. What about if the nine rotates with a 10 that you haven't even looked at? It was James Coppinger at this time, who's already made eye contact with a nine. What if they rotate? What do you do then? And you know what? What if you do the right thing and you actually intercept the ball? Where are you going next with it? And he just laid it on me. One, it was brave because I was a senior pro at that time. And he's, he's digging me out in front of everybody. But he really brought an understanding of you can't just be thinking one dimensionally, offensively or defensively. You've got to be thinking both constantly. So it made me appreciate the value of detail. Again, you can see how these things are going to be inextricably linked to business. And the DNA is very similar. Then off the field, later years, our two investors, uh, Max Cami and Sandy Magon, who have been incredible mentors, they've built successful businesses multiple times, taught me the value of, of how to be a better leader, treating people the right way. You work for your employees, they don't work for you, which is a really important piece. Even as a co-founder, you're a collective team, they come first. They're the people that are going to take your product over the line at some point. And then in terms of reading, it would be Carol Dweck, Simon Sinek, and Peter Drucker for a million reasons that we could probably spend another three hours on <laughs> of an extended podcast, but they would be the three in terms of people I read and learn from who, uh, who have never met me. Wow, that's great. It's, I love the story about also just kind of thinking, and you use the word beyond, right? Thinking beyond, thinking that next step. And, you know, here we are beyond Pulse. You know, obviously it's, I think, well-named because in the early goings of these tools that were being used by coaches to understand heart rates, that was probably the introduction to it. And then it just went from there. And one of the things that I've been fascinated by is all the information that just goes well beyond the pulse, well beyond the heart rate. But I think that's also key in terms of you and, and you as a person and how you go beyond when you're trying to understand people that you work with and, and that you work around in your everyday environment. It's one thing that stood out as getting to know you more and more over the last couple of years. So when you think about that career, right, that you've taken that path, it's you probably as a young player did not ever think that you would be doing what you're doing right now. I, I know as a player, I didn't imagine those things either, but when did you start thinking about life beyond the game? Was there a moment, was there anything that stood out for you to, you know, one day you're going to be coaching coaches around the, the U S and, and around the world with a monitoring system? Like, but when did you think about just life beyond what am I going to do after the game? Way too late. If I'm being honest, being very candid, I thought I could play forever. You know, I, I left Doncaster Rovers and went to Oxford. That didn't work out. I was probably getting to a point where injuries and slowing down a little was catching up to me playing Saturday, Tuesday, heavy schedules in, in English Football League. But I wouldn't accept it. I refused to accept it. I was terrible in school. Not that I don't value education. I have my issues with the academic system, but I value being educated wherever that pathway takes you. And I suppose one advantage I've had is, as I've gotten older, I've had the benefit of pulling any book from anywhere on any bookshelf anywhere in the world, depending on what I love, what I'm passionate about, what I care about, what I want to learn. It's been very organic, but it's been very valuable for me. And I've also been guided by some incredible mentors and what to read as well. So it's not been a linear kind of academic process for me since leaving, uh, since leaving the game, but I, I didn't think about it. I, I took my B license as I was playing at Doncaster because I knew eventually I wanted to become a, a coach and, my aspiration still to this day is to become a first team head coach. And I believe I'll do it at some point. Whenever that, that is, I, I don't know, but, but it'll always be there. And I'm, I'm always keeping my network within football open just in case. I guess I came over to the US looking to do something different. 
something that would put me out of my comfort zone in a place I knew there was a ton of scope for development. But what I needed to do, rather than lean on friends, say, hey, can you, can you give me a job in, in the MLS? Can you help me out here? Can you plug me in here? I decided to apply for youth soccer jobs, travel soccer jobs in a DOC position because I wanted to do something different. I wanted to step away from the professional game. I also wanted to understand the entire pathway of the, the whole pyramid. So I landed in New York City. People asking me, what are you doing? Where are you going? Why did the decision to go to New York City and leave the professional game behind at home in England? Um, and I kind of just set off on, on this journey to experience something new. And I ended up on 89th and Columbus in the middle of Manhattan. You know, I was given a clipboard on my second day and told there were three buses going to arrive at Randall's Island and there was probably going to be 400 kids between them all on them and it was rush hour and it was like, don't lose a kid. I was like, okay, this is a challenge. We're in the middle of rush hour in Manhattan and I've got to get with my staff players to and from Randall's Island to practice. And from there, it was setting up goals in the morning. It was going and buying flour from a local grocery store because the parks department wouldn't let us use paint. So we had to go buy a machine that would help us spread flour to line fields at Randall's Island. But man, what a great experience. It was humbling to go back and do those things. It reminded me of my, my moments of cleaning showers and toilets at United, but I had some staff that didn't want to be out there at 6am in the morning. And I understood that, but I, it was just freedom again to, to put things together. And by the time parents and players rocked up, I was the one, if it had been raining, covered in what looked like a white paste from the flour mixing with the water. And in the first four or five weeks, you know, I was still behind the scenes, not wanting to put myself out there. So parents must have been thinking, who's this guy stood on the sideline with a New York Stars Premier badge on? Asking, yeah, how's your day going? <laughs> New York parents, of course. Um, but they were a good bunch. I learned a hell of a lot. I realized I wasn't prepared at that point, actually, to develop people and inspire I suppose, leadership attributes and qualities. I didn't know how to do that at that point. That's where the relationship developing and, and building trust helped me out in a way, just by building a bond with my staff, our staff, our team. And we grew quickly, but, but we grew disorganized. So we grew from 17 teams to 75 nationally in, in a heartbeat in three years. And I wanted to pull the whole thing down again once I got to the end of three years, realizing that I hadn't done it properly, hadn't done it with structure, hadn't done it with the proper processes in place. So dollar signs go up and go through the roof, but I could see it was probably a house of cards at that point. It's still a, a good company today. I left after three years and started to build Beyond Pulse. But I would say, Jason, to answer your question in the most long-winded way, all of the experiences I've had through life actually did prepare me for life after the game. I just needed to know how to access them and how to process the information I'd received over that period of time and then put it into action and, and, and test it and test myself. Great to hear the journey of Mark Wilson. He is the founder of Beyond Pulse. You can check it out at beyondpulse.com. We come back, we'll dive in a little bit more with Mark Wilson right here on Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Nike is a proud sponsor of ECNL Girls. Nothing can stop what we can do together to bring positive change to our communities. You can't stop sport because hashtag you can't stop our voices. Follow Nike on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. From athletes just starting to turn heads to some of the best athletes to ever play their games, Gatorade shows that they are the proven fuel of the best. For the athletes who give everything, nothing beats Gatorade the studied, tested, and proven fuel of the ECNL. 
Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Once again, here's Dean Linky. Welcome back to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. We're here with Mark Wilson and Jason Cutney. Jason Cutney is the commissioner for ECNL Boys. Mark Wilson, the founder of Beyond Pulse. When you go to Beyond Pulse's homepage, there's actually a quote from Jason Cutney, the boys ECNL commissioner that says, and I quote, as a league committed to the education and development of its players and coaches, the ECNL seeks out opportunities to align with forward-thinking partners who put the best interests of these groups first. Having worked with the Beyond Pulse technology as a coach, I was able to experience the benefits of their product and services firsthand. The partnership between ECNL and Beyond Pulse aims to provide a platform for member clubs to expand their own coaching resources by way of innovation. That quote tells me, Jason, you're proud of this partnership. For sure. The one thing that stood out to me about joining ECNL with everyone involved in the league well before I was is just how much the league did to help its member clubs and coaches. And I started as a coach and a director of a club within the ECNL before joining ECNL. And it was very clear to me that the league was doing everything and then some to help the development of those clubs, those coaches and those players. And so stepping into this and, and looking you know, beyond Pulse was one of those early relationships that I was able to form with Mark and his team actually through a U.S. club soccer ID2 program that I was a staff member for. And it was just kind of really interesting, you know, and then I met back up with them at an ECNL national training camp on the West Coast. And the more I was around it, the more I realized how much I needed to change about the way I coached. And just the, you know, the, the fact of forcing reflection upon those sessions where we normally just end the session, move on, go home, have dinner at, you know, 1130 at night, because we just did four and a half hours straight of sessions and do it all over the next day. But it allowed me to really take a, a different lens from my bag after each uh, training session and take a look at what I was doing, how the players were responding to it. And I think that's probably the, the magic in which they work. So happy to have Mark on here. You know, I think the insight that Mark brings as well from his experiences as a pro player to me are very intriguing. I, for one, through my experiences was, was able to kind of look at the pro player transitioning into a coach and or a businessman. And that, transition is really awkward. It's tough. You know, and I think when you're in the mentality in the locker room as a player, it's killer be killed. It's everyone is expendable. You know, I learned some harsh lessons and I also benefited from some of those situations as a player, but you realize that if you're not helping the team to win in that moment at that time that you are out and someone else is in. And when you're on the field, you do whatever you have to do to get the result, no matter what. And so when you step into the business world and you start managing people and trying to become a leader in that field, I think you have a greater appreciation for the different styles of a captain from when you were a player as in those days, but also the empathy that's required to lead people. And I think there's a, a very interesting dichotomy there of leadership that exists between players becoming business executives between that killer be kill win at all costs mentality that's ingrained in you as a player and also that compassion and empathy to manage and lead people. So I'm, I'm very interested to hear about that mentality and that transition for Mark coming out of the highest levels of the game into business, you know, 101 and, and starting and going up from there. But you're obviously around people. You are successful and beyond pulse is successful because of how you manage and lead people. So what is it? What's the magic recipe? Yeah, wow. Great question to ask. I think having been around 
different types of leaders in, in locker rooms and, and managers and then seeing how that translates into business but looks different. The word adaptability always jumps out at me. And I think average leaders raise the bar for themselves. Good leaders raise the bar for others. The very best leaders inspire others to raise the bar for themselves. I came from an environment where, could you call them average leaders? Because they were raising their own bar all the time. In a way, yes, because they weren't directly inspiring you through helping you learn, helping you understand, but they were challenging you every day in different ways. So one, you're not going to take my place. I'll reference, you know, Roy King, Nicky, but Paul Scholes are looking at me as a young kid coming through United and they're saying, you're not going to take my place. I accept that at this club, we believe in youth. So you're going to push me for my place, but you're not taking it. And there's me going, I'm going to take it. I have to think like that. I have to believe I belong. I have to believe I can do it. And when you're told you can do it, that's kind of the gaffer Sir Alex Ferguson and Eric Harrison and Mike Phelan's way of just giving you that prod and poke to say you're here for a reason, believing yourself. You're transitioning through the age groups and, and the levels, and now you're knocking on the first team door. So the, the level of competition, the level of drive, the level of play at United was something I never, ever experienced again. The Thursday morning games, when it was first team against the reserves who were being another team, you know, the tactical preparation, were some of the hardest games I ever played in. And they were relentless and they were horrible. And you would fight for everything. And the gaffer would just stand on the sideline looking at, all right, this is culture. This is what we need. This is what's driving the club forward. And he's steering the ship in terms of the vision. And whether it was Steve McLaren or Mike Field or somebody else or Brian Kidd, they were just putting the constraints and conditions in there and a little bit of tactical wisdom just to keep it ticking because the players drove everything. So in essence, you had leaders all over the place. But those leaders were definitely looking to always raise their own bar first. And it works in that environment because it's highly competitive. It's highly challenging and you're on contracts. So there's a pressure for you to make sure you're still there at the end of a contract. Fast forward to now learning how to be a leader within a business environment where even as a director of coaching, where some people haven't had that experience of that cauldron, that pressure cooker locker room environment. That can be aggressive. It can be a little bit nasty. It can be highly pressurized, like psychologically, physically, it gets demanding. You can't then lead in the same manner. You can take the desire and the courage and the passion and the will to compete and the will to disrupt and innovate. You can use that to drive you what you want from your business forward. But then you have to adapt and be agile and look at the characteristics of the people that work for you and really start to listen. It then becomes at that point, not about you at all. It becomes about them. What do they need in order to do their job to their max, to their full potential and grow beyond that so that they want to stay with us as a company? What am I hearing in every conversation I have with them? What, what story are they telling me in every sentence? What do they need help with, but they, they feel uncomfortable openly saying it out loud so they're telling me in a different way? You've got to really listen to understand that. And then you have to support them and get them to feel comfortable by being, when they're uncomfortable, by giving them processes and mechanisms and structure and framework that become the foundational piece and the safety net that allows them to become creative and innovative and the freedom to fail and make mistakes and get things wrong. So I, I had to learn very quickly that I can't just apply my locker room leadership mentality and experiences straight into 
a startup or business or even as a DOC in a, in a youth travel soccer club, I couldn't bring that rawness into that environment and expect it to work because I just don't think it would have. And you still get things wrong all the time. You still misjudge something. You still, you listen, but you don't always hear, you know, we're not perfect. We're flawed human beings. So we make mistakes, but as long as you've built the trust and you've shown empathy and you've shown compassion and you've shown vulnerability, the moments where you make mistakes with your team, with your staff, with your peers, it'll be accepted and you work together and you move forward. So there's definitely not a direct transfer. It's about channeling the things you learn from the professional game and then learning to become adaptable by being educated by others who've been there and done it before and then making it actionable so you can actually learn firsthand in your own experiences on how to, how to do it better. One of the early things you said there about what great leaders, what they pass on to those around them. I just finished a book recently called Multipliers by a, a woman named Liz Wiseman. And it was just all about making those around you smarter and better and how you do that. And I was never one for books, to be honest. I turned to audiobooks, so I'm a good listener as opposed to a good reader at this point. But uh, I would say multipliers for anyone listening in that leadership role, just looking for interesting tidbits as to how to be a little bit different of a leader and make those around you better it would be a, a good plug where we have, we have no financial benefit from saying that for Liz and her book, but it's, uh, it's certainly one that I would recommend. It's going on my list. <laughs> good plug. <laughs> so... Last thing here, and, and I'm interested because ECNL now we're, we're set to launch the Super Cup program next year, right? And it's, it's going to, in many ways, take young aspiring top prospects and put them into an environment that they're not ready for. It'll take younger players and put them with older players, smaller players, put them with bigger players, and just the same older players with younger players and less experienced players. And so there's going to be value on both sides of that spectrum, and in the thick of it, you're going to find up and coming players in this country who are now a little bit more battle tested, you know, a little bit more prepared for this. So, you know, you signed as a 14 year old, I think initially overseas, it's a little bit different overseas, obviously, than it is here. What are your thoughts on Super Cup? Good, bad, or in between? And, and I say that with a risk of running an ECNL podcast here, but it's really impactful to understand what the thoughts of someone who made it to the highest level, who experienced the rigors of this game and how cruel it can be at a young age. But what do you think about how we are implementing that into the current structure within the US? Firstly, I think the ECNL is, is, is a world, it's a globally leading soccer organization in terms of efficiency, effectiveness, impact, taking care of your players, looking after the educational opportunities for your staff, for people within the, the ECNL ecosystem. And the Super Cup is no... It's no surprise to me that this wonderful idea has been crafted and cultivated to bring a level of, a further level of professionalism to the ECNL. I think it, it brings a level of competition. It brings a level of aspiration. It really gets you even closer to that professional first team model where you've got the, the younger age groups knowing that if I do well, I can play up, I can become a part of this group. Even if you start to invite players to, to train, with the Super Cup teams, you've got an environment actually like they, they had it at United and I think it's at Clairefontaine and Sarcel Club in, in Paris that do a wonderful job of, of transforming street footballers into some of the world's best. It's like at United, they have a cage and they used to have Pogba playing with Rashford, playing with Lingard and they're all different shapes and sizes and they'd put them in this, it literally is a cage and a turf field and they'd let them play. 
their own rules, they call their own fouls, but it was mixed age groups. Top class players, top draw players coming together to aspire to be, to try and get into the first team, to learn something from the senior players who were in that particular game. And by, by creating the focus, by creating the opportunity for your younger age groups to aspire to get into that Super Cup team at some point, it gives them this dream. And, and I know the ecosystems within each EC and L club, they're, they're run very well with very good coaches who, who do want to take care of our players. But there's a real element of, of top, top competition in there as well, which you need. You do need the element of competition to bring out the best in your players. You have to look after them. You have to take care of them. You have to promote psychological safety and social competence and all the things that prepare them to face the challenges of what competition and talent ID and recruitment brings. Because it does bring some challenging, very, very difficult phases and, and, and things to you in, in, in your journey. So I think the Super Cup's a wonderful idea. I think it's going to be a huge success. And I know from the guidance of everybody at the ECNL and you personally, Jason, there couldn't be a better group of people to really bring something new like this to the, to the table. We call it disruptive, I guess. It's definitely innovative. It's unique. And I'm looking forward to see how this grows and develops over the coming years. Outstanding visit with Mark Wilson, the founder of Beyond Pulse. You can check him out at beyondpulse.com. Great footballer as well. And of course, Jason Cutney, the boys commissioner. Let me be the first one to say during this holiday season that I hope your Super Cups are overflowing indeed. Thanks for being with us and happy holidays to both of you. Same to you. Thank you. Thanks, Dean. Thank you indeed, and on behalf of the entire ECNL family, we wish each and every one of you a very safe and happy holiday season. I'm Dean Linke. We'll see you in two weeks for another edition of Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. Thanks for listening to Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast. For more information on the ECNL, visit us at www.theecnl.com. And if you have a suggestion for the show or a great idea for a guest, please email us at info at theecnl.com. Breaking the Line, the ECNL podcast is an ECNL production. ECNL, more than a league.